0: This morning, we are coming to the third sign that John writes in his gospel, sign number three, the third one he's recorded. Now, we must remember that according to his purpose, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, though there were many other signs that Jesus did, John selected these signs, okay, for the purpose of evangelism that you might believe. So we got to know up front that John was very selective in the signs that he chose to incorporate into his gospel. Now, let's look at the first two for a minute and compare them with this third one, briefly, up front. I want to point out a few observations. Number one, this sign we're going to read this morning, Jesus initiated. When he turned water to wine in chapter 2, the people initiated. His mom, Mary, initiated that, right? Later or before in chapter 4, later on in chapter 4, the nobleman's son, the noble came to Jesus, and the noble engaged with Jesus, and he initiated it. Here, this is a sign that Jesus himself initiates. He goes to this pool, and he sees this multitude of people who are hurting and in need of healing, and he singles out this guy and selects him and heals him. We also know that this sign will result into a dialogue not just with the one he heals, but with the religious leaders. And so this is going to be like the first occasion where Jesus has this big uh, discussion or dialogue with the religious leaders. As a matter of fact, we're going to close this morning with verses 16, 17, and 18 how they wanted to kill him. First, they began to persecute him, but as he was teaching them that he was equal with the Father, then they turned it up a couple of notches Till they wanted to see him dead. So we see in brief that is what is going on here. So let's stand together, and we're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, verses 1 through 18, okay? This is the first part of three parts of this story, because the story really goes all the way to verse 47 of chapter 5. And I know you didn't want me to go through all 47 verses this morning. I wouldn't want to do that. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18, because John chose this, listen, look at me. John chose, selected this sign because as a result of this sign, he would be engaged with the religious leaders and would teach who he is. That's why he selected this sign. Okay? There's many other instances where he healed on the Sabbath, but he in particular picked this one because it resulted in Jesus having this long discussion or teaching about who he is. So, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticoes. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put to me. Into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another one steps before me. In other words, I'm just way too slow. Okay? Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. John interjects now this comment. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. And it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while the crowd was in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for understanding of this passage. We know that all of Scripture is inspired by you and it's profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, this passage is not excluded. And so, Father, you have intent and purpose with this passage, and that is to teach us about Jesus Christ. It is for those who already believe to strengthen that faith, to mature it, to renew it, to refresh it. And for those who might be in the distance of my voice that don't know Jesus Christ, who have never believed, it's for the purpose of him coming to believe this day, to hear who Christ is and to bow before him as King of kings and Lord of lords the one who has conquered sin, death, and Satan, and to come to him for salvation and to trust in him alone for eternal life. So God, this morning, make new life out of those who do not have life and refresh those and strengthen those who each and every day strive to walk in Christ because of what he's already done for them on the cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I have broken this passage down and uh, basically to three sections. Okay, first of all, it's, it's really basic. It's based upon the dialogue: is Jesus with the the lame man? Right. That's point number one. Point number two is really not an outline, but I'm just giving you the flow of what's going on here. Okay, is Jesus with the lame man? The lame man with the religious leaders, the Jews, and then and then it's going to be Jesus with those religious leaders. That's kind of how it evolves okay that's how it it's how it flows i'll give you something a little bit more detailed than that listen to this it's actually progressive and it's really on a pro- downward progression not progression upward this is not like getting better and better for jesus it's getting worse and worse for him okay and it's really going to catapult downward in chapter six the popularity of jesus as being a real good guy didn't last all that long actually Okay, In the middle of his ministry, it started going downward, spiraling downward as the Jewish leaders began to pick up on really what he was teaching, that him and God are one, that he is the Messiah. Once they picked up on that, once they heard that, forget about all the signs, forget about all the miracles, they began to hate him just for that again uh, alone. And here we begin to see that in chapter 5. In chapter 6, we're going to see a lot of disciples leave him later on. Somewhere are in the middle of his ministry. So what we have here in verses 1 through 9, you want to mark up your Bibles this way, is we have Jesus initiates the healing in verses 1 through the middle of verse 9. Then the second part of verse 9 through 13, the Jews interrogate the man that Jesus healed. They find out, they weren't excited that he was walking, they were upset that he picked up his pallet. Really silly, isn't it? So the Jews, in verses 9 through 13, interrogate the healed man. In verse 14, Jesus initiates again the healed man. And he tells them there's something more important than just being healed physically. That's verse 14. Verse 15, I call it this, the man rats on Jesus. He throws Jesus under the bus. And then finally, 16, 17, and 18, the Jews persecute and plot to kill Jesus. That is really the flow of our passage this morning. And so all this leads. Now, I want you to listen to this. All that I just said leads to his teaching in verses 19 through 47, which we'll spend the next couple of weeks looking at. And, and I'll, I'll tell you right up front, those, that whole section is divided up into two parts Part number one is Jesus' oneness with the Father, and the second part of that large portion of teaching has to do with the testimony of history, how history testifies to who Christ is. It's beautiful, beautiful passage. I want you to look at that, verse 19 through 47 real quick. We're not going to read it. I just want you to look. Mine's in red. Do your Bibles have the red? It kind of helps give you perspective of what's going on here. That means Jesus spends all those verses teaching so this, this one sign John picks because it catapults us into, or catapults his re, his readers into this long dissertation of who Christ says that he is. That's why John incorporates this sign into his gospel, because of where it leads primarily. Now let's work our way through this story one step at a time. First, Jesus heals the lame man in verses one through middle of verse 9. He heals him. It's a feast going on. John doesn't say which feast it is. It could have been the Passover feast, Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. We don't know. It wasn't that important. Okay? Is it really, for, for John's purpose, it was not all important for us to know that detail. It was just to know that it was during a feast that Jesus came into Jerusalem and he went to the pool of Bethesda. Beth- if I can say it, say that fast five times. Bethesda. Okay. So we don't know the feast. We're getting further further details in verse three and four. Listen to this. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind. Get the picture. He's walking, and basically it was two pools back to back. Bethesda, there's two pools there. And there's a multitude, lots of people. It could have been tens of people, probably hundreds of people were around that pool at various distances waiting for something to happen. Look at the middle of verse 3. Do you all have a bracket there in the middle of verse 3? Any of you all in your Bibles have a little footnote? Okay. It's there because a lot of the translators aren't sure if this was a true comment or not. A comment that began in the middle of verse 3 in New American Standard, waiting for the moving in the waters, all the way to the end of verse 4. Whether it's true or not does not change the story. Does not influence the story. I think it, it, it's fine for it to be there. I think what's happening is John picks out a superstitious belief that existed during that time. And he, so he, he, he gives the reason why all these people were there. Because they thought an angel of the Lord, verse 5, would go down at certain times or certain seasons and stir up the waters. And as soon as people saw those waters stirring, the, the first one in got the blessing. Now that's totally inconsistent with God. Actually, it's kind of cruel, isn't it? This guy's been trying for 38 years. I believe what John's incorporating here is there is a superstitious reason why people were around the pool of Bethesda, okay? There wasn't actually something good going on, but that was their superstitious tradition that they were reason why people gathered around that pool, so that's what verse four, verse four does. It explains the significance of it and why they were there. Verses five through nine brief, briefly explain, explains what happens. Verse five is about all we know of the man. 38 years. He could have been, he could have been 38 years old. He could have been like this from birth. He could have been 42. Something could have happened to him when he was four. We just know it's been 38 years. He could not walk. He was lame. The muscles were gone. You know what happens to unused muscles over 38 years? (laughs) They're gone. No amount of drugs can change someone like that. No amount of physical therapy could ever deal with muscles that have not been used for 38 years. The only way for this man to walk again was by a, a supernatural act of God. No human effort could change this situation or this condition of this man. And so a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. Think of this. There's hundreds of people, people around this pool, and Jesus initiates and singles out this guy. The text never says that these people were begging Jesus to heal them. None of them knew who he was. This man even admits later on, I think it's in verse 13, he didn't know who Jesus was. So here, this is a sign that Jesus initiates. Jesus, why are you initiating this sign? Because he was looking for and making an opportunity to teach others of who he is. The signs existed for the message. The message does not exist for the signs. He did this intentionally, knowing that this would result in an opportunity, in one way, shape, or form, to tell people about who he is. And that's what happens in verses 19 through 38. Excuse me, 19 through 47. So Jesus sees him in verse 6. He'd been there a long time. And he asks the question. Do you wish to get well? I love the sick man's answer. He doesn't really just say yes. I think he complains. He complains because he doesn't know who he's talking to or who's talking to him. So I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, I'm making every effort. I'm pulling myself and I'm crawling to get there. Someone steps around me, boom, beats me to it. Been trying this for years. I've come up short every time. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Notice verse nine. Immediately. Immediately, what happened? The man became well. Immediately, on the spot. He didn't have to get up and shake his legs and try to begin to move them slowly. He I believe he got up as if nothing had ever been wrong. There was no recovery time. When we have surgeries today, there's recovery time. It'd be like Officer Michael just getting up all of a sudden, forget the drugs for all that. No more recovery time. He is healed, done, on the spot. It's miraculous, folks. I love this. Let me let me make two observations at this point on the heels of verse 9. Of this story, number one, Jesus takes initiative. He selected this man out of a multitude. The man had no clue who Jesus was. no one did around that pool. Jesus seemed to have just just picked this one out of many people he could pick. There's nothing about this man that made him special, other than he' be in a condition for thirty-eight years. Maybe Jesus picked him out because he was the one with the worst condition. Maybe not. We don't know. There's no details here. Not only was John generic about this man, but he's generic as far as what feast this was. Why? Because John's thinking it's not important. What's important is what's coming up in verses 19 when Jesus talks about himself. When he begins to teach that he and the Father are one, that, John is saying, is what is important. Then Jesus gets to the gospel. Uh, Something else is going on here. Here, Here's the second observation. How he did it. Jesus merely spoke. What's this reminiscent of? Genesis 1 and 2, when God speaks, his will just happens and it happens immediately. It happens without opposition. There's no delay. This is the sovereignty of God. This is God incarnate healing a man who had been corrupted by sin. His body has been corrupted by sin. He's been lame for 38 years. And the same God who spoke creation into existence in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis is speaking to this man and calling him to rise. Same voice because it's the same person. I want you to note in verse 8 where he says, get up. That verb there is also used in verses 28 and 29. Let's go there for a moment. Go fast forward into our text for next week. Chapter 5, 28 and 29. Jesus says this, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his what? What? Voice. Dead people in the grave, in the tombs, are going to hear the voice of Christ. And will what? Come forth. Come forth. It is the same Greek verb as used in eight. Get up. He's talking to people in the tomb. Get up. Come forth. Same verb. In context of 28 and 29, he's calling people to life. He's calling those who have deeds They're of righteousness to eternal life. And those of deeds of darkness to eternal death. And we know deeds here. He is not talking about. Working for salvation. The deeds here are in reference to the deeds. He spoke about in chapter 3. If you'd like to go back. Verse 20 and 21. For everyone. Who does evil. Hates the light. It does not come to the light. For fear that his deeds. Will be exposed. But. Contrary to them, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his, there it is again, deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God's. Those who are saved by grace will do deeds of grace. Those who are saved by God's grace will walk in the works that God has foreordained for them to do, Ephesians 2.10. Does that make sense? So when we read in chapter five, excuse, yeah, chapter five about these, and will come forth those who do good deeds to resurrection of life, to those who committed evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. He's not saying salvation based on works. He's saying your works reveal whether you trusted Christ or not. James makes the same argument in his letter in chapter two. You you, you say you have faith. Oh, that's good. Show me by your works that you truly believe in Jesus Christ. The works are the evidence of true saving faith. You got that? So Jesus is just right there pointing to the deeds. He's not talking about those who have worked for their salvation, but those who walk in the works that God has foreordained his children to walk in. Okay? As a result of them trusting Christ. But here, Jesus, who spoke creation into existence in Genesis 1 and 2, now tells a part of his sin Affected creation to get up back to chapter 5, verse 9. This man who's been affected by sin. His body affected and polluted and perverted by sin. This sin nature has gripped him in many ways and just spiritually but physically. He calls this man to get up. Wow. Isn't this encouraging? Later on in John 11, he's going to tell who to get up? Lazarus. What's the method? What's the means? He speaks his voice. And though we do not hear audibly the voice of God today, we have recorded in your laps the word of God today, which is the same word, just as powerful. As the word of God, when we use it, is the word calling people to come to Christ. That's why our testimonies, I said last week, when we share our testimonies, our testimonies should have in it portions of God's word called the gospel to it. And we should be calling people to trust in the word of God because ultimately what our faith is based in. I don't want people to believe because I say so. I want them to believe because the word of God says so. And so we testify not just to who Christ is, but we testify that this book testifies to who Christ is. And unless you trust what the Bible has to say about Christ, you will never trust Christ genuinely and truly. Amen? Doesn't that give you comfort? The voice of Christ, the word of God. Isn't it encouraging, assuring, that the gift and the calling of God is irrevocable? So when God called, when Jesus called that man to be healed, it was irrevocable call. It was going to happen. Nothing could get, or no one could get in the way. His, the man's sin did not get in the way. Where there are the effects of sin, God's grace abounds all the more. Go to chapter 10 for a moment. As I just, this is a quick expounding upon this. In chapter 10, The voice of God, verse 27. Listen to what Jesus says. My sheep, what? Hear my voice. They hear my teaching. They hear my words. And they understand them to be true. And they, what? Come to me as a result. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they, what? As a result, follow me. Based upon his, what? Voice. His word. Here you have people following Jesus for the signs, but Jesus is trying to get them to understand, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be because I speak nothing but the truth. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never what, perish. Here is the promise based upon his word of eternal security. It's so eternal, it's so secure, he goes on to say this. Verse 28, no one will snatch them out of, Jesus says, my hand. But then Jesus mentions another hand, the Father's hand, the very next verse. 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. A double catch. This eternity is from the Trinity not to mention the indwelling of the Spirit in that person. That's eternal security. Based on what? The voice of the great shepherd. My sheep hear my voice when my word is taught, when my word is preached. It is a drawing mechanism to me. Boy, does this not elevate to the nth degree, the importance of accurate biblical exposition and the preaching of God's Word more than anything else. This is what attracts the sheep, not the band and the smoke behind them, not the atmosphere, it's not even the music. They hear my voice, they hear my teachings. They When the truth is spoken, when the truth is preached, They're going to say, it comes from Jesus. That's where I'm going. I'm going to follow him. Amen? All right. Okay, let's back to our text. I got a little excited there. Chapter 5. Notice what Jesus said in verse 8. I want you to notice this. He didn't just say, he could have said, get up and walk. It's the Sabbath, though. He's an instigator. Because he didn't just say, get up and walk. He said, I also want you to take up your pallet. Now, if he said that any time Monday through Saturday, it wouldn't have been an issue. Or he said it on the Sabbath, right? He knew what he was doing. He knew that if the religious leaders caught wind of this or saw this man carrying his pallet, they'd be coming at him. He had to know this, right? And so he adds, pick up your pallet and walk. And so the man immediately does what he says. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Man. Boom. I'm I'm walking. I'm taking up that pallet. I'm going now. But notice what happens next. The scene begins to change. It begins to change. And we know that because the end of verse 9, John adds, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Uh Uh-oh. Carrying a pallet on the Sabbath. That's naughty. Forget that the man was healed. Our law says that's not good. And so here, from this point on, I want you to get this picture. You have these men telling the Lord of the Sabbath what he can and cannot do on the day he created. The arrogance of humanity. You had these men telling God incarnate, you're wrong. And he's the one that created the Sabbath. He's the one that established it gave it purpose. Mark calls him Lord of the Sabbath, and certainly the Lord can interpret it and do what he wants with his Sabbath. That, by the way, he created it for man, not man for the Sabbath. So he created it to help man, to give him rest. But all he was doing was showing mercy to a man on that day. So that's what we are walking into in these verses now. But before we get there, Uh, You see the dialogue, excuse me, in verses 10 through 12. Okay, 10 through 13. Because the Jews caught him, he's walking, he's carrying this pallet, and they're going, what are you doing? You're laboring, you're working, you're breaking God's law, i.e., as we interpret it, okay? But he's like, hey, the guy who healed me said, pick it up, so I'm going to pick it up. It's kind of a no-brainer today, right? That's what we would say. But the man, in verse 13, still did not know who it was that healed him. So that scene ends, and in verse 14, John says, after Jesus found him in the temple, Jesus and this man get together again, this time in the temple. And Jesus, again, initiated and said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, whether or not, this man's sickness was due to sin. We just don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Right? We, we don't know. John does not describe it. According to Job, we can have sickness and they're not be because of sin. But we also know that it could be, sickness could be a result of sin. A lot of diseases today are a result of sinful lifestyles, aren't they? Natural consequences that God has built into his creation. AIDS. Others right, yes, yes, and yes, okay, but go to James for a moment, this is a this is a precious little passage of scripture, James chapter five. It is very relative to what I'm talking about here, to what is going on in verse fourteen or whether or not sin can or cannot be involved. In someone's disease or sickness, okay? This picture is what elders do with a congregant, with a member of the church who is struggling with a disease or a sickness. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? There it is. Are you sick? then what do they do? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I think back then they had different kinds of oils that they thought had different effects on people that might help a little bit. Or it was symbolic of healing and anointing to heal this person. But look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is what? Sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if there's the condition, maybe, maybe not, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So what elders do is this this is a this is how if you're sick and you're in bed and 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 you're tired of it, and you know it's not a flu or a cold, okay, and you want you're scared, and God it puts impresses upon you to grab the elders and say, I want you to come pray over me and for me. What are the elders going to do? One of the things they're going to ask you is. You need to examine yourself over the last many weeks and months and to see if this is the result of sin. We can't make that call. But we've got to point it out to you because it's a possibility. After that examination, or that you self-examination, you come back and say yes, we'll say then we need to talk about it. You need to confess it and repent from it. Or if it's no, we, we deal with it from that point on, whatever your answer would be, and we pray over you. We ask for God's healing. So here's the thing. Sickness can be beautiful when it's God's method of getting His attention, your attention upon Him, to show you that you're living in a way that's not approved by Him. Does that make sense? It's it's kind of like the belt of a parent, <laughs> right? Right. So 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 God takes something. Like sicknesses and diseases that are a result of the fall and being holy turns around them and uses them in the lives of his children to get their attention to walk in his son again. Isn't that beautiful? Oh. So, he's not saying necessarily that in verse 14 that that's because of sin in your life. John just does not say, but we know that could or could not be a possibility according to other portions of scripture. Nevertheless, Jesus, Jesus warns him, why? Why though? In this, why does he make this comment in verse 14? To communicate that no matter how good it is or was to walk again, how beautiful that is, how good it is, you need a greater miracle. He had a greater need, and that was a turn from sin and to rest in Christ. To turn from sin, repentance, and the rest in Christ. What does it mean to rest in Christ, to trust in his finished work on the cross? That's what it means. Jesus is saying, your greatest need is not the miracle of walking on your feet again, but the miracle of walking in Christ. Your physical calamities are not your biggest and greatest problem. Your spiritual calamity is your biggest problem. You've got the SIN virus And and, and that's ultimately what you have to get taken care of. That's what Jesus is communicating with this man here. He just didn't heal him for the sake of healing him physically, but as a lesson, as a billboard, as a sign for his bigger, greater need to be healed over his sin. This verse is nothing, verse 14, is nothing but a call to repentance and faith in Christ as the Messiah and if this man would continue in unrepentant sin, his healing would do him no good whatsoever. Temporal. So what if God healed me or made my life better and I still end up in hell when I die? You see what's going on here? We as human beings, we in our sinful nature, we're always living for the temporal. We tend to lean towards prioritizing the temporal things over the eternal. I want to live in the here and now. And Christ came for the hereafter. This man would face eternal judgment if he would not repent of his sins and turn to Christ and rest in him. Verse 15, this is where the man kind of throws Jesus under the bus next. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, because of that man's testimony that it was Jesus, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. But I want to stop for a minute and talk about this man. Even though we don't know much about him, one commentator wrote this. What we do know is that he was no hero of the faith. Turning Jesus in like, thinking on, ratting on Jesus. He was more interested in covering himself more interested in saving his own skin. This man knew that the religious leaders were upset. They knew that they were, he knew that they were mad. He knew that they were no one to play around with. And so he wanted the pressure off of himself. And the only way to do that was to go to them and say, I found out his name. His name is Jesus. Took the pressure off of him, and now the attention was placed on Jesus. And so this man was not, the, not a hero of the faith. He was more interested in covering himself, saving his own skin. Here's, here's the point. He was not willing to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after Christ. He was not willing to suffer for Christ. I don't believe one bit this man had true saving faith. I think this man is in contrast to other people that Jesus healed. How do you respond to the greatest miracle of them all? Rebirth. Listen, listen. He took the blessing of God and ran away with it. He took the blessing of God and what he he ran away with it. Jesus blessed him, healed him, and the guy (laughs) covered the blame, blamed it on Jesus, and he ran away with the blessing of God. What do we do with our salvation? Do we run away with it and still go live our lives the way we want? You see, beloved, I really believe there is a stark contrast between that person, that person does not have true saving faith, and the person who does have true saving faith. Because I really believe that Satan has counterfeit faith out there. Whatever God does, Satan has a counterfeit for it. As if the man said, hey, thank you for the gift of walking, but as far as these spiritual leaders are concerned, (laughs) Jesus, you're on your own. You deal with them. He took the blessing of God and used it for himself. Sounds reminiscent of Israel in their history. Write down Ezekiel 16. I want to show you something here, and we'll probably close shortly after this. Ezekiel 16, you go, what in the world does that have to do with where we're at? Well, let me explain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul teaches us when we go back and look at Israel's history, it's instruction for the church today. We learn lessons from the history of Israel. In Ezekiel 16, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is rebuking Israel who had rebelled from God. Okay? And the prophet in Ezekiel 16, he, he, he reminds Israel of where they had come from and what God had done for them. Listen to these words. Verse 2 of Ezekiel 16, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. What's an abomination? Is when you take the gifts that God has given you and you use them for yourself. You use them for your own advantage. And Israel did just that. Let's read on. Verse 3, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. In other words, you had terrible origins. (laughs) You were not orthodox from the very beginning. But then it gets really grosser. It really gets ugly. Let's go on. Verse 6. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, this is a picture of at least a newborn or an, excuse my phrase, an aborted baby left in the field to die. When I passed by you and saw you, verse 6, squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Verse 7, I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Look at verse 8. Then I passed by you, and I saw you. And behold, you were at the first time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I covered your shame before the other nations. And so from this point on, Through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel is telling Israel, here are the, here has God found you. Here's what God, God, here is now what God has done for you. Excuse me. Verse eight, I spread my skirt over you. Verse nine, I bathed you with water. I also washed your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Verse ten, I also clothed you with embroidered cloth. I put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I clothed you, I put shoes on you, I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. Verse 11, I adorned you even with ornaments, bracelets on your head, necklaces. You see the imagery here. I have blessed you over and over and over again. Verse 12, I put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Verse 13, you were adorned with gold and silver. Your dress was not just an ordinary dress, but fine linen. Silk and embroidered cloth. Look at verse 14. I made you famous. As a result of that, God says, Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. Who gave them the beauty? God. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Now verse 15. But you trusted in your Beauty, you fell in love with my blessings more than me. And how do I know that? God says you took them and you did what you want, what you wanted with them. You selfishly used them. You fell in love with all that I have given you and you committed idolatry with them. Beloved, wow. Can we learn from this lesson? That when God blesses us spiritually, when he awakens us to the splendor and the glory of Christ, what do we do with the splendor and the glory and the knowledge and the power of Christ? When when, when we start sharing it and suffering results, do we what? Cover ourselves and walk away so that we don't suffer anymore? Like the man in John 5? Obviously did. Wow, this is so powerful. Verse 16, you took some of your clothes made for yourself, high places, various colors. And notice the word yourselves. Made for yourselves, high places, various colors. You also took, verse 17, your beautiful jewels made of my gold and my silver and made for, there it is, yourself. Male images, do we take the blessings of God and use them for myself? No, true saving faith does not operate that way. True saving faith takes the blessings of God. It takes the beautiful glory of Christ and all the blessings of God and gives them right back to him and uses them for him. That's why churches can be in danger of being all about the church. Denominations can be in danger of being all about the denomination. But the church exists for Christ. That's the ultimate lesson here. The church exists. God blesses his people. God blesses the church so that the church exists for him and not itself. That's the lesson. That's why we're saved. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the truth of why you save. Thank you that Salvation is the greatest miracle of them all. It's infinitely bigger and grander and greater than any physical healing because the healing of a soul, the new birth in Christ lasts forever and ever and ever. And so, God, you give us that eternal life to free us up from sin, to even free us up from ourselves so that we live Not that the attention would be upon ourselves or upon our church or denomination or whatever, but so the attention would be on you, Jesus, because you are the splendor and you are the glory of heaven. May we live and breathe each and every day to show forth your greatness and to point others to you because you alone are worthy.